Lord Jesus, we thank you for Mark's gospel. We thank you for its uh, richness that has blessed us over the years and over these months of lockdown, the sure-footed uh, teaching of your word. Lord, we pray that as we finish today on Mark 13, that it would be a timely and relevant message, as it always is from your word for our time and for our circumstances. Help us to listen and to obey your words. Help us to trust them, for they are true, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, right at the start, as we get into Mark chapter 13, which is a, a prophetic chapter, Jesus is teaching uh, about what will happen in the future. And he's speaking around 30 AD, Mark written, uh, 30 or so years after that. Everything in this chapter is beyond that, so it's in the future. It's very important that we acknowledge that it's Jesus who is speaking here. It is Jesus who is telling us these things. If I was to say to us, the Lord Jesus never lies, we can trust his promises, that would elicit the assent response in our minds. But just let it sink in for a minute. He cannot lie. It is not possible for God to tell untruths. It is not possible for God to exaggerate or to minimize. It is not possible for God to spin or manipulate. And certainly for me, as I've thought about this sermon this week, that's really sunk in to my heart. It's one thing to say we trust God's Word. It's another really to to grasp the fact that it is impossible for Jesus not to speak other than truth. Now, the teaching in this chapter, as I said, is prophecy about two events. Number one, and I listened to the sermon last week, which will give you a much fuller explanation of this. Number one event, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which happened in AD 70, so after what's written here, the destruction of the Jerusalem and the temple is God's final judgment on corrupt Judaism. The second event, which is our focus today, is much, much further down in history, and in fact, it's not yet happened. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple did happen in AD 70. But the second event that this chapter speaks of is the return of Jesus at the end of the age. Now, the first of these events, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, happened exactly as was predicted. In the same way as all the promises in the Old Testament, some 300 of them, were fulfilled exactly in Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. But the second event has not yet happened, the return of Jesus at the end of the age. Now, we are living in the period known as the last days, and the last days can often be misunderstood as 
uh, a defined period. The last days is the time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and his return. The last days is the whole of that period. It's not the last bit of that period. So we are living in the last days. We don't know if we are living in the last bit of the last days. Another way to think about it is that the last days are the church age. Or the last days are the days when the gospel is proclaimed to the nations of the earth. Now these two events, the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple AD 70 and the return of Jesus as judge, in this chapter, were we to read it again, are woven together like two threads that make up some item of clothing or a rug. You cannot distinguish them. They make one color, and you couldn't unpick them. Why are they woven together, these two separate events? Because God wants us to see them together in three ways. Number one, the fact that the first event happened means that the second event will happen. Now, we need all the help we can get to really be convinced of that in our minds. After all, it's 2,000 years. The help we get is that all through the Old Testament, people longed for the day when Jesus would come, and he did exactly as the prophets said. And Jesus said to the disciples, this building will be destroyed, and it did happen. And Jesus will return. And certainly for me, over these two weeks in Mark 13, I've always believed that Jesus will return. That's fundamental Christian doctrine and truth. But to believe it in your head, your heart, your mind, and your soul as an inevitability because it's promised by the Lord Jesus as the only possible conclusion that makes sense of it all is a different thing. Secondly, both events are about judgment. The first final judgment on corrupt Judaism. The second event, God's judgment on all humanity who have rejected him. And thirdly, woven together like two threads, both events are about the saving of the elect. Now, what I want to do today uh, in the second study on Mark 13 is look at three areas of practical application from this chapter about Jesus' return, and it's full of practical wisdom. Let me set these three areas out as questions, and then we'll consider each in turn. Firstly, what are we to expect as believers in the time before Jesus returns? Secondly, what will happen on the day he comes back? And thirdly, what are we to do in the time before he comes back? So really simple things. What are we to expect? What will happen on the day? And what are we to do in the meantime? So firstly, what are we to expect as believers in the time before Jesus returns? Now let's read 
a bit of the text now. Uh, Mark 13, verses 3 to 13. Let's read these verses with a comment in the middle. And as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, disciples' questions in verses 3 to 4 are about the first event, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus had predicted that would happen in verses 1 and 2. Maybe they thought the world was going to come to an end. But Jesus' answer says that is just the beginning. And in his answer, verses 3 to 13, Jesus is speaking about what will happen in the long period of history that is ahead before he returns at the end of the age. And he sets out very clearly what they, as the apostles, at the start of the church, and all generations of believers in the church through history are to expect in the time before Jesus returns. So this is what Jesus said it would be like in the world between his resurrection and his return. Now let's read it. And the application is to look out in the world and ask yourself the question, is he right? Verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. See that point, the end is not yet. What he's saying is, He's saying in the period of the last days, there will be wars and rumors of wars. But don't think that that war or that rumor of war means that he's about to come back. We don't know that. For nation will rise against nation. Is that a pattern we see? Kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. They are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, this is to Christians, to the church, for they will deliver you over to councils, you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. There's a diamond on the black cloth, verse 10. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, Let's apply these verses. What are we to expect as believers in the time before Jesus' return? And remember, this is a description in these verses of the whole of the last days. The characteristics of the world in the period between Jesus' resurrection and his return. First, Jesus speaks about the world in which we live. Wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. That doesn't mean to say don't be concerned, don't be grieved. It doesn't mean to say don't pray, but don't be surprised. This must take place, but it is not yet the end. Nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquake 
plagues, famines. The other gospel writers in similar passages speak about plagues and disease. And of course, we live in a world where death is ever present. This is, in the teaching of Jesus, an accurate description of the world in which we live. It is not specific so that you can say, oh, that only applies to my generation. It is true of all generations. Conflict, natural disaster, environmental issues, fallen humanity in a fallen world. Now, the global pandemic we are currently experiencing is not there for something that should shock us in terms of why it is happening. Stuff like this will happen in the world before Jesus returns. It's happened in the past, it is happening now, and it will happen in the future. The events that are happening in the world at the moment, the global pandemic, do not tell us, and I think it's really important that we are clear in this, they do not tell us that Jesus is coming now. We don't know. But they do remind us in a very stark way that he is coming. And he must. Otherwise, there is no hope. There's no breakout of the cycle. Now, that does not mean to say, that biblical perspective does not mean to say that we shouldn't pray that God will bring the pandemic to an end. We should. It doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't pray for those who are seeking to deal with it. It is absolutely right that we pray, but it shouldn't surprise us or alarm us in the sense that it is happening. Nor should the power struggles between nations. That will never change until Jesus returns. So be wary of believing rhetoric like we will beat disease, we will eliminate, we will end war. We won't because we can't, because we're not God. It won't end until Jesus comes again. And the fact that we can't beat disease or end war cries out that as humanity, we need to turn to God in two ways. To turn to him in the midst of a global crisis and pray with sincerity and conviction that God in his mercy will alleviate that crisis but to pray even more conscious of our inability to deal with these issues that people would realize across the world that they need God, that they need the Lord Jesus because only he can fix our broken lives and the broken world. Biblical perspective what are we to expect, though, as believers? We are to expect the presence in the church of deceivers uh, or those who lead 
you astray, verses 5 to 6. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. False teaching. It is striking that every single New Testament letter was written to stop Christians and churches being led astray by false teaching. Isn't that striking? Now, in the context of Mark 13, the false teaching could be spurious prophecies about when Jesus will return and such like. But I think it's much more likely that what the Lord Jesus is referring to here is simply teaching that distorts or changes the gospel or the teaching about the Christian life, false teaching that gets a foothold in times in history or in places in the world when the Bible clashes with the prevailing culture. That's when false teaching is most persuasive. It always has been and always will be. Now, here's a little detail in what's a general uh, study of this chapter. A little phrase in verse 6 that is interesting. Just read that with me. Many will come in my name, Jesus said, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. People saying, I am he, are not, I think, claiming to be Jesus. What they are doing is claiming to speak with the authority of Jesus, claiming that the spirit of the living Jesus has led them to some new revelation. And that's been all over the church in history, particularly in tough times and places when the church is under pressure. Every Christian teacher is called to teach God's word as it is written in Scripture. For these are the words of God. We are to explain and apply them, but never change them. And I wonder if Mark here in chapter 13 is drawing a link between those who claim, I am he, I am, I am God's voice in this generation. God is telling us to change this, that, or the other. I wonder if Mark is wanting to draw a contrast between the greatest prophet who ever lived, John the Baptist, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, who said, not I am he, but he said, I am nothing. I am not worthy to untie the straps of the sandals of the one to whom I point. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What a difference. The greatest prophet says, I am merely a voice pointing you to him. Our job as Bible teachers is to point people to Jesus. We do that by proclaiming Jesus' own words. What should Christians and churches who are faithful to the word of God expect? Verses 9 to 13. It's not a great advert, verses 9 to 13, to sign up. 
And we're not talking about preachers here. We're talking about every Christian who speaks the gospel and who owns the gospel and who follows the Bible and is committed to that. Verse 9, you'll be delivered over. Verse 11, you'll be delivered over. Do not be anxious. God will give you the words to say. Verse 12 is pretty shocking. Verse 13, the world will hate you. I wonder if it's, if it's foolish for us to say, well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, isn't it? For many, many, many years, that was a description of other parts of the world, and still is, largely compared to here. But what Jesus is describing here is not sort of abnormal times or abnormal situations. What he is describing here is normal, the normal context for the church in the world throughout history. Hardship, difficulty, opposition, and persecution. And it would certainly be true in the West and in our country, we are moving from abnormal to normal times. Let's pray and be wise and that things do not keep moving more and more. Except all the evidence around the world and in history, not always, but usually, is that the gospel the church is vitalized and energized and refined and clarified when the difficulties surround it. Notice verse 10 in the middle of the list. Classic illustration, the, the black cloth in the jewelers shows off the brilliance of the diamond. Notice the promise in verse 10. Think of the Lord's Great Commission at the end of Matthew or the beginning of Acts. Here's the promise in Mark 13, verse 10. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The gospel goes to all the nations of the earth. The great commission of the Lord Jesus and the context, the atmosphere that the gospel goes to the nations is verse 9 and 11 and 12 and 13. Two forces seemingly opposed. The church pressed down the gospel going forth. It is when the church is not under pressure that it becomes enfeebled. It is when the church is not under pressure that it becomes soft. It is when the church is under pressure it is enlivened. It recovers its convictions. It is vitalized. And so as we move from abnormal times to more normal times, 
where things are harder. We should never relish difficulty, but we should rejoice in the vitality it will bring to the church as the gospel goes forth. Now, second, what will happen on the day he returns? Jesus addresses that in verses 24 to 27. Let's read that. In those days, after that tribulation, now the tribulation is simply the difficulties the true church and Christians will experience in the church age, in the last days, between Jesus' resurrection and his return, the period of gospel proclamation in the world. When that time is at an end, and it will be a day, an event, like the birth of Jesus happened on a day, like the death of Jesus happened on a day, like the resurrection of Jesus happened on a day. He will return on an appointed day, and on that day, read with me, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they, is all humanity, will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Let me point out one or two things. Jesus' return on that day will be visible to all. All will see it. Somebody asked me earlier, how will everyone see it? Maybe the answer is because we see everything that goes on in the world now through the media we have. They will see the Son of Man coming. Now, what people, most people didn't see Jesus first coming. Everybody will see his return. And what people saw when he first came, those who did see it, was weakness in his birth. What people see in the age of the church is weakness. What they will see when the Son of Man comes is great power and glory, and it is frightening. Just picture this in your mind. It's the best illustration, just what's written. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. That's judgment. The elect will be gathered. Jesus will gather in his elect. The elect are those who have believed in him as their savior. He will gather them in from the whole earth, from the tombs, from the graveyards, from the dust of their ashes, from all nations, all peoples, throughout all generations of history. God will gather in the elect they will be with Jesus in the new creation, 
those who have not trusted Jesus as their Savior will be left to God's judgment. Luke, in his gospel, and I quoted this last week, puts it so vividly and so helpfully and so clearly not to shock, but to wake us up so we are clear. Could the Lord Jesus have said it any clearer than this, I tell you? In that night there will be two in beds. One will be taken and the other will be left. He could not have said that more clearly. A husband and a wife in bed, one taken, one left. Two people playing golf, one taken, one left. Two people in the supermarket, one taken, one left. Two teenagers in a school classroom, one taken, one left. Two people at bingo, one taken, one left, on any other context. One taken, one left. And the Word of God asks us in our hearts, which, which are you? Will you be gathered into the arms of Jesus on the last day, or will you be fleeing from his wrath? Revelation 6, we'll look at that next Sunday night, talks about people fleeing for cover. There will be no opportunity to change our mind then. Jesus spells it out so very clearly. But two days or three days later from this teaching, he hangs on a cross and spells it out very movingly with what are arguably the key words in Mark's gospel, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' offer on the cross is that he bore God's wrath so that you can stand on the last day when the sky implodes and the stars fall to the earth, you can stand the wrath of God because you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Please do not spurn Jesus' love, love like no other. You need to hear the clarity of his teaching. One will be taken, one will be left. But you need also to hear his words from his cross. My father, why have you forsaken me? The answer so we can be forgiven. Please, please believe in him now while you have the chance. And if you are in his love as a believer, as many of us are, then all is well. 
all is profoundly well. And live out your days on this earth doing what Jesus has asked us to do. And with that, we finish. What are we to do in the time before his return? Verses 32 to 36. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, stay awake. What are we to do as believers in the time before Jesus returns? Don't speculate as to when he will come but we are to expect him at any time. Don't spend your time pulling back the curtains to look out the window, but go about your business in your home, conscious that at any time the doorbell will ring and the Son of Man will come. It is not our business to know when. It is not the angel's business, astonishingly. It is not even Jesus' business to know. So if it's not his business, it's certainly not ours. Don't speculate, but be ready. Be on your guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, stay awake. Living in this state of readiness means being alert and working for Jesus. Verse 34, just let this verse sink in. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home. This is Jesus leaving the earth, his home. It's encouraging that the, the earth will be resurrected and will become the home of Jesus. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants, who are his servants, that's you and me, in charge, gosh, each with his work, his servants are his believing people on the world, each, each with their work to do, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Jesus has left us in charge. Well, that's a reworking of creation. He left humanity in charge under him. And what is our redemption for? Under God, we rule over his world in one unique way until he returns. And that one unique way that is more important than anything else is verse 10 in the context of verses 9 to 13. This is the rule that we are to be about, speaking the message of the gospel to the nations and the world. And we do not rule in power. We rule in verses 9, 11, 12, 13, weakness. A weak church 
humanly speaking, vitalized and living and galvanized, speaking out the gospel. It is the commission for every Christian. Verse 10 is the work that the master has left us to do. And that is what we need to give our time and our lives and energies to. As we reflect on coming out of lockdown, too much can be said of that, I think. It's only four months or five months after all. We tend to think that nobody in history has lived through something like this, but they have many times. But my personal reflection of us as a church might be that we have not yet really grasped in the way we live and in our lives, certainly me, really the privilege and the resources and the mandate that has been given us, which is verse 10, to speak this good news, to trust that when we are lost for words, the Lord Jesus will give us words. For there is no doubt, is there, that the message the world desperately needs to hear is not that we will beat illness or that we will end war, but that only Jesus can and one day will. But we must be ready for that day by trusting him. And as Christians, we must help people get ready for that day. by ensuring there is no one we know who is not a Christian that does not hear the gospel from our lips. How on earth can we do that? Jesus says, I will help you. I will give you the words. I will give you the words. Trust me. Let's pray. Loving Lord Jesus, thank you for this very, very powerful and clear teaching. So clear, so strong. And just as we finish, Lord, we want to pause. Those of us who are encompassed by your love, because we have turned to Jesus for salvation, and acknowledge that all is well, Acknowledge that you have given us a clear task to do. And maybe, Lord, for some listening, on the very cusp of salvation, moved or disturbed perhaps by these words, one will be taken, one will be left. One will be taken, one will be left. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, some troubled mind or heart wrestling over where they will be, will find their mind moved to the cross of Christ and moved to respond in faith, clinging to that cross and the salvation it offers them. And that doubt in their mind 
Will I be taken or will I be left? Now becomes, I will be taken. I will be gathered. I will be safe. I will be with Jesus for all eternity. Lord, we pray for such decisions to be made. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.